the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy November 20th, 2020. Yesterday we celebrated the Gettysburg Address, a uniquely American piece of political philosophy that we gifted to the world. And then we lamented that while so many around the world still celebrate it, as it should be, by redounding to it when necessary, we here have buried it, either forgetting it or dismissing it. What we need here, it seems to me, is a great relearning. I take that phrase from the novelist Tom Wolfe. Writing in 1987, as usual, Wolfe was prophetic and ahead of his time when he was writing then about the 21st century. He wrote, The great relearning, if anything so prosaic as remedial education can be called great, should be thought of not as the end of the 20th century, but the prelude to the 21st. There is no law of history that says a new century must start 10 or 20 years beforehand, but two times in a row it has, has worked out that way. The 19th century began with the American and French revolutions of the late 18th. The 20th century began with the formulation of Marxism, Freudianism, and modernism in the late 19th. And now the 21st begins with the great relearning. The 21st century, I predict, will confound the 20th century notion of the future as something exciting, novel, unexpected, or radiant, as progress, to use an old word. It is already clear that the large cities, thanks to the relearning, will not even look new. Quite the opposite. The cities of 2007 will look more like the cities of 1927 than the cities of 1987. How do you like that? Wolf was off by just a bit, but the cities this year did look like the riotous and calamitous cities of the 1920s. He would continue on, quote, The 21st century will have a retrograde look and a retrograde mental atmosphere. People in the 21st century, snug in their neo-Georgian apartment complexes, will gaze back with a ghastly awe upon our time in the 1980s. They will regard the 20th century as the century in which wars became so enormous they were known as world wars, the century in which technology leapt forward so rapidly man developed the capacity to destroy the planet itself, but also the capacity to escape to the stars on spaceships if it blew. But, of all, but above all, they will look upon the 20th century as the century in which their forebears had the amazing confidence, the Promethean hubris, to defy the gods and try to push man's power and freedom to limitless Godlike extremes, close quote. Limitless godlike extremes. I want us to think about now how retrograde philosophies are making a comeback, as if new, as if untried, as if full of potential for greatness. Take Marxism or socialism. It has been spoken of more in the past two years, and positively, I might add, than it has in any 10-year period prior in America. Be warned about that. Irving Kristol wrote this a few years back, also prescient. Quote, 
Today we live in a world with an ever-increasing number of people who call themselves socialists, an ever-increasing number of political fideists who keep insisting that we must not judge socialism by any of its works, for it has never truly been tried. This is all quite ridiculous, of course. Socialism is what socialism does. The plaintive lament of the purist that socialism, or for that matter capitalism or Christianity, has never really been tried is simply the expression of petulance and obstinacy on the part of ideologues who, convinced that they have a more profound understanding than anyone else of the world and its history, now find that they have been living a huge self-deception. People who persist in calling themselves socialists while decrying the three-quarters of the world that has proclaimed itself socialist, who can find a socialist country nowhere but their imaginings, those people are anachronisms. As such, they do serve a purpose. They help the historian and scholar understand what socialists used to think socialism was all about. One could discover that from reading books, of course, but it is sometimes enlightening to interview an actual survivor. Perhaps the most extraordinary fact of our intellectual history is that all thinking about socialism takes place in non-socialist countries, close quote. Think about that for a moment. Where there is thinking and second-guessing is never in a country governed by versions of Marxist thinking or socialist government, only in free countries. And the actual survivors of regimes governed by mar versions of Marxist thinking, who were fortunate enough to come here, they warned us. The proponents of it, they never lived it. And yet here we are, consider the most famous movement of this past year, BLM, was founded by two people who proudly call themselves Marxist. It, was, <clears throat> it received hardly a blink, but instead a deference and embrace by elected officials almost everywhere. And to, the point, and to point this out or criticize it garnered and earned censorship. So we face something perhaps uncomfortable to talk about. It may have won a massive election. Whatever your regnant thoughts about recounts and election irregularities, it is clear that tens and tens and tens of millions of Americans voted to support a political party that did support and embrace all this, including censorship. Our warnings and survivors' warnings dissuaded little. So we can do one of two things, submit or push back. Of course, we will have the aiding and abetting of reality, actuality rather than theory and warning. A reimposition of critical race training will probably be the first thing. An attempt on our economy and greenery will be another. Look toward more benefits to non-citizens and efforts to socialize or redistribute income from roofers to AOC types to cover their college loan debt. We'll see efforts to re-engage rogue regimes because they share both socialist thinking and anti-Western philosophies. But you can't fight something with nothing. You can't put a genie back in a bottle that is broken. You can't fight nihilism or, for that matter, any other retrograde philosophy with a nullity. And a nullity is what our education system has given us, backed by an entire culture that countenances it. For, as Crystal warned, the dead idea of socialism is now putrefying both in the world's mind and the world's body, where it used to exist. 
but it has to be fully removed and buried. And yet an, an erroneous idea can be expelled from the mind only by the active presence of another better idea. This is why I spend so much time on things like the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln, the founding, and political philosophy generally. You may not, as I say, be interested in bad political philosophy, erroneous ideas, if you will, but they are interested in you. Thus the need for a great relearning. I think it's important for us to remember because something is tried and didn't immediately succeed does not mean it should be dispensed with. Marxism doesn't think that way, clearly. Neither should we. So, okay, we lost the 1964 election and got the Great Society and then Nixon. Reagan lost the 1976 election and got us Jerry Ford and then Jimmy Carter. We ultimately got Reagan, but then gave up as if the fight was over, forgetting his most famous instruction, namely that because we had eight years does not mean we had 80 years. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like to live in the United States where men were free. We all know the quote, do we live it? Eight years, say 1981 to 1989, is not 80 years. And the race towards socialism here has never been more aggressive. Not since 1989 or, for that matter, since about two years ago. Consider that. Huge victories on our part. Say Reagan. Say Trump. But only to yield to more aggressive and at the same time dressed up forms of socialism. Owning the White House, as it turns out, does not mean owning the schoolhouse. The schoolhouse ends up maybe being more important. Homeschool and charter parents, some, understand this. But that still leaves something like 90% of our pupils in schools that, as the UFT just passed in its resolution, are embracing the BLM curricula. If you go to that organization's education website for the BLM curricula, you get right up front a quote from Asata Shakur, who is an escapee from our justice system for shooting a cop. She took up residence in and was given asylum by Cuba, still on the FBI's most wanted. Part of the curriculum, or I should say what the website calls it, demands. Part of the curriculum or their demands are to defund the police, which I presume means school resource officers. I guess when you quote people on the FBI's most wanted, that's what you would want to do, get rid of the police. What amazes and should amaze is how far into the mainstream or what used to be the mainstream this stuff has run and flowed. Barack Obama's Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, was considered as moderate a Democrat as you can find, much closer then to a Joe Lieberman than to an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And yet Arne Duncan tweeted just this month, quote, we need to talk a lot less about red and blue and a lot more about whiteness, close quote. This from a white man who served a black president. I always worry about where the center of a party is and what is considered moderate. I don't think our movement has shifted its centers much from the ideals of the modern conservative movement circa roughly 1960 to 1989 and 2016 to now. But it's very clear the Democratic Party has moved their needle very far leftward on the groove that is the middle of their record.
If you haven't tired of me quoting Harry Jaffa yet, I should close with this from him. The salvation of the West must come if it is to come from the United States. Salvation of the United States, if it is to come, must come from the Republican Party. And the salvation of the Republican Party, if it is to come, must come from the conservative movement within it. And the salvation of the conservative movement, if it is to come, must come from the renewal and reaffirmation of the principles of the American founding embodied in the Declaration of Independence. Let's get to work. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602 There's a lot I want to do with you today. It's uh, mostly open lines, though. You can call in on anything you like. I had an interesting conversation with some folks last night about friendships, liberal and conservative friendships. I want to talk to you about that. Remind me if, uh, if I forget to do that with you all, Bill. I am just gobsmacked at what this society rewards, what our culture rewards, and um, what it uh, buries or denigrates. So Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, governor of the state with the, I think, worst COVID, not I think, the governor of the state with the worst COVID statistics, deaths uh, uh, per capita, number of deaths, nursing home deaths, nursing home policy deaths. He, um, He writes a book, right? He writes a book on leadership lessons. I think it's the first book on how to handle COVID. He has the... uh, audaciousness to write that book and uh, now is engaged in massive shutdowns again in New York, including of the schools and including the limiting of how many people can show up at Thanksgiving to um, private houses, private houses, limiting the number to 10. I'm glad a few sheriffs are saying they're not going to enforce it. They have better things to do with their time. So today he is, uh, it's announced that he is uh, being rewarded with an Emmy Award, E-M-M-Y, Emmy Award for his leadership during the pandemic for issuing a sense of calm. I don't know how much calm you can be credited with promulgating when you tell the rest of the country this is a speed bullet coming for you. This is a runaway train coming for you when your own state has the worst statistics. I just don't know how you get calm out of that, nor do I understand why people thought there was wisdom here. CNN and MSNBC would cover his press conferences. They would cut away from the presidents. They cut away from the presidents. Now, remember, it was the president who said he didn't want to put panic into the population, And Cuomo's the one talking about speeding bullets coming for the rest of the country. When he wasn't doing that, this is some audio we captured from one of his press conferences. You tell me if this is Emmy worthy. To the best you can, you find a way to create some joy. You you try to find a silver lining in all of this. How do you break up the monotony? What do you do? How do you bring a smile to people's face? give you my idea for today. Uh, Sunday, I come from an Italian-American family. Sunday was family day. We had the big uh, family 
dinner, but you'd have it like in the afternoon, so it was like a confusing. By the way, like you can't have that now under his orders. Late lunch, they called dinner, and it was Interesting. spaghetti and meatballs and sausages, and uh, my family would all get together, and it was a beautiful time. I didn't really appreciate it as a kid. Uh, but it was just beautiful because they all came together and the grandparents were there and they would start to eat at 2 o'clock. It was like a marathon uh, session. Now, I, I don't want people was, tuning out, but he goes on and on and on about the sausages and the meatballs. And it does make you hungry listening to it. But this is what passed for MSNBC and CNN not ending coverage of these press conferences. Now, it didn't dawn on me when I asked Bill to play this audio from a couple few months back that what he was advising then is not what he's advising now. Big family gatherings, do that, he said then. Now, police will be or sheriffs will be tasked with looking into your homes if your family gathering is too big. Ten. Anthony Fauci today was interviewed. You tell me if I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It just struck me as odd at best, somewhat um, preening, some uh, moral self, self, self-righteous self moralism. He let it be known that his Thanksgiving will be done with his three daughters all by Zoom. Okay? Now, I paused on that, and I just thought, so what is the point of this? You bring the turkey, you bring the yams, you bring the whatever stuff. Well, that's over when you're all doing it by Zoom. You're all doing your own thing. And then what? Do you hold it up like some kind of Passover Seder each dish or something, talking about the dish you're about to consume together by Zoom? I don't even understand how you do it. But he was asked about it, and he said, well, I'm telling families, Fauci, news are, families are, holidays are, says, I'm telling families to make a risk-benefit analysis over their Thanksgiving plans. Did you ever think we would come to such a technocratic place in our lives where health experts or professionals or spokesmen are saying you have to take a risk-benefit analysis over your Thanksgiving holiday? Am I wrong for overthinking? Bill, you had a thought on this, but I, it just something about it seems to have – talk about a killjoy, taking all the fun out of everything. Thanksgiving requires every family to engage in a risk-benefit analysis. You said something about this earlier. What did you say? I think it was about the same as you said, unless I forgot something Well, you else can, that said. doesn't count as radio. You can't just say, well, what you said. You can't just do that. You had individual, autonomous, sovereign thoughts of your own that I thought were valid. Oh, I did mention the virtue signaling. You thought it was virtue signaling. And he didn't want to look like the Gavin, uh, Gavin Newsom in California. He didn't want to look like a hypocrite. So he's going to have a uh, he's going to have a Spartan time over Thanksgiving because he's urging everyone else to have. A Spartan time over Thanksgiving, a Zoom Thanksgiving. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really quite amazed to think about how, how these will go. If, if any of you are engaging in Zoom Thanksgivings, do let me know and, and let me know how it goes, because I, I just don't understand how that works. Nor do I um, find it at all humorous or interesting that Andrew Cuomo 
is getting rewarded with an Emmy for talking about family gatherings and sausages when he's outlawing them now. Outlawing them now. One, I haven't read his book on leadership in COVID, but I wonder if the book has been superseded or rendered moot because what he said then is not what he's saying now. I just wonder. Maybe I should order it. I'm going to order it from a used bookseller. That's what I'll do. I'll order it used. I'm Seth, 602-508-0960. Anything on your mind, give us a buzz. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602 602- Five zero eight zero nine six zero. In my monologue, I talked about um, how far into the Democratic Party the socialist movement has moved. And uh, just today, although it's been repeated several times over the course of this month, but just today again, I should say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that we are radicalized and we are winning. We are radicalized and we are winning. She has no doubt that a Biden presidency will be good for her and her movement. That's why you've heard me say, maybe somewhat controversially to some, but I, I stand by it. These columns and uh, jumpings for, well, that's putting it too high. Uh, these columns and attempts at intrigue with the Democratic Party having fissures and having its wings clash with each other rather than fly together. I just think they're overwrought. I think once upon a time they might have been interesting, but I think it doesn't matter anymore now. I I just don't think there are the wings that um, are that separate. A Biden presidency will embrace almost everything AOC believes in. So much more the case work. Kamala Harris to be running the executive government, the executive branch of the government. If I were wrong about this, then you wouldn't have seen Nancy Pelosi, basically the head of the Democratic Party, endorsing and sending money to the campaigns of people like AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. They, they had primary challengers. Pelosi could have sat it out keep the radicals in tow but the thing is she herself is a radical as is the democratic party now fully so why else would aoc be so happy saying we're radicalized and we're winning they are they are and the only differences that you will see between the quote squad i let me come back to the name the squad the the only differences you will see between the squad and a putative Biden-Harris or Harris administration are going to be tactical, not ideological, and um, not, uh, not, not desiderata. It'll be just questions of timing. Um, that, that, that I am convinced of, should this all come to pass. Now, why do I say come back to the word, the phrase, the squad? It's going to also be rendered meaningless as the party becomes more and more like them. I don't know what the distinguishing characteristics are 
philosophically or ideologically or policy-wise between what Rashida Tlaib or AOC or Ilan Omar or Ayanna Presley stands for and the Democratic congressman who says Donald Trump is guilty of treason or Steny Hoyer, the number two in the House of Representatives for the Democrats, the number two in the House of Representatives, Steny Hoyer today said that Donald Trump is committing borderline treason. How is that any different than what the kinds of things the squad have been saying are? They aren't. You know what the difference is? The only real difference is age. Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden are of a different age. I think today's Joe Biden's 78th birthday. You know what that makes him, by the way? That makes him older today, pre-putative inauguration, than Ronald Reagan when Ronald Reagan left the White House. And if you watch Joe Biden, he's not getting better. He's not doing better with the teleprompter. He's not getting better. And the cleverest thing he can respond to a reporter is, why are you always shouting? And that's supposed to be something funny. It's not funny. He had, the reporter from CBS asked Joe Biden a good question today. The question is, what are you going to tell American people about schools opening and closing? I mean, Joe Biden's the one who wanted to talk about national mandates having to do with the coronavirus and that Donald Trump was responsible for 200,000 deaths. as a Ben Shapiro imitation. But he won't address the schools closing. He won't address that. He just says, oh, why are you always shouting at me? It's not funny. Why doesn't he talk about the reporters that are shouting at Kaylee and the vice president and the president when they do press conferences on big and important things like health care, as they did today? We'll be right back. I know that's Diamond David. I was watching something on TV the other night. It was the old Johnny Cash show. He used to have a television show, and he had Roy Orbison on who did that song, uh, made that song famous, what, 1963 or 4? And uh, it was just kind of fun what rock and rollers like uh, Roy Orbison looked like and did in those days. We probably should play. No, we don't need to play more Roy Orbison. Never mind that. Open line Friday, 602-508-0960. Just when I hear music, I always want to comment on something having to do with it. Michael is in Mesa. Hello, Michael. Hello, Seth. I really enjoy your program. Well, thank you. Psalm 91 specifically mentions pestilence, the plague which we're encountering now. And I wanted to share with you and the listening audience that it's a good idea to pray Psalm 91 every morning. For protection against the virus. Can't hurt. Let's hear it. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High, rest in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely we give you help from the Father's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, the air that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right, but it will not come near you. You will only observe and with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Michael, let me pause you there. Let me pause you there. Great. Thank you for that. But 
not but and let me uh, look i i think this is a especially as we enter into the time of thanksgiving and then of course uh the december holidays christmas and hanukkah it, psalms please yes more of them all of this is to the good the one thing i do want to add though michael well let me ask you this um have you tested positive or you have you had the coronavirus have you had covid-19 no, sir, I haven't had no experience with it. I've, you know, lived around my apartment for the past eight months. Okay. So one of the things I want to remind people of, because I, I do think that there is, obviously, to re- be repetitive of not just myself but others, common sense stuff we can do to protect ourselves. And I think mediating mediation factors should apply more strongly and more seriously to, you know, the older population or those, obviously, who may have um, comorbidities. But I also don't want us to think that having it is the end of the world. Um, You know, we we have put ourselves into a position as a society that we are so terrified of this thing that we are almost willing to accept anything that is told to us and accept it with ardency and 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 a willingness to accept and believe it with such strenuousness that those people who um, don't accept everything that is being said about it are considered deniers or, uh, you know, uh, 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 truthers, which is the same Use I know it's the opposite, the antonym of a denier is a truther in some respects, but it's meant to be the same thing. Like, we don't think it exists. When all we're trying to be is rational. Alexander Hamilton said, a nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. Let me repeat that. A nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. And I think we have preferred disgrace to something we have invented into a level of dangerosity that does not exist. To wit, to wit, the CDC itself, everyone bows and genuflects before the CDC. The CDC itself, to wit, cdc.gov slash coronavirus slash 2019 ncov slash hcp slash planning scenarios. Infection fatality rates, if you get the coronavirus, if, again, if you get the coronavirus, if you are in the age group of 0 to 19, your chances of fatality are 0.00003, three ten thousandths of a percent. In other words, your survival rate is 99.99997. If you are 20 to 49, if you are in the age group of 20 to 49, the fatality ratio is 0.0002, two ten thousandths of a percent. It's so close to zero, it's hard to fathom, Bill just said. That is to say your survival rate is 99.9998%. If you are in the age group of 50 to 69 years... Your fatality ratio is 0.005, five thousandths of a percent. That means your survival ratio is 99.995. 
70 plus, we get serious because there your fatality ratio is 0.054, which is to say five hundredths of a percent. So your chances of survival are 99.95%. Okay? I just think it's important that with everything we lose, we don't lose our heads over this thing. I'm not uh, criticizing the call Michael made. All, I'm all for it. I love, I love the Psalms. We should all have Psalters. We should all read Psalms every day. It's a good and important thing to do, especially the more trying the time, and especially the more trying the social conditions that are being imposed upon us that create social anomie. So thank you for that, Michael, to be sure. I just want it, someone out there, someone out there saying these things. Because the data is there, and if it's the CDC we genuflect before, I'm just quoting the CDC. I'm just quoting the CDC. And instead, we've disrupted all life, almost all business, we have... Put families in arguments with other families, turned friends against friends, disrupted relationships over a fear that has been instantiated in the society and that we are reminded to be scared of every single day, which is so contrary to the very nature of everything I thought this culture was about. Okay, maybe we're not the rugged individualistic culture we once were, or maybe parts of it once were. But we're closing, just a small example, small example, I could give many. We're closing schools to protect children from something that doesn't kill them when we have never done it over the flu, which kills them in far greater numbers. Explain to me how we got to that point and explain to me how we have made Americans terrified of fellow Americans. There's an entire political party that is more afraid of fellow Americans than illegal immigrants. I don't think we should be afraid of either of them. We are not a country that should live in fear. Fear is about the worst motivator for any decision anyone can ever make. I think psychiatrists and psychologists will tell you that. You don't make decisions based on fear. It's not a good thing to do. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Your show... Uh, for the next uh, hour and a half, I um, where where am I going to next? Marie in Phoenix. Hi, Marie. Hi, Seth. Oh, I love your show. The intellectual approach is never the wrong way to talk about anything. Uh, I have two problems. Number one, only I'm two volunteers. Only two. Um, okay. Oh, only. only two. I, you should have a talk show, and I should call you because I got like twenty. Oh, gosh, I've got hundreds. Okay. Okay. You know, but anyway, my first problem was I tried to volunteer as a Republican poll watcher and a very young voice. Oh, no, we have too many of them. And I thought, you know, that should have been a wake-up call. Now, back to the second. You know there's corruption in our state, too, here in Phoenix. And I don't understand how... Um, you know, the little astronaut 
you know, is being sworn in before our election has been looked into and all of this. And I feel so bad to hear that um, McSally, Lawson McSally, was in front of the Congress in tears because she lost. But you know what? I if if Trump took California, he would have taken Arizona with it too. Yeah, I, and I think there's a lot of talk that Trump took California, and that's why they called that fast. And the votes hadn't even been counted when they said, you know, it's for Biden. So, um, what can we do to help this state get back? in the program. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Good questions all, Marie. Well, first of all, Kelly can um, can be sworn in earlier than the new Congress because of the weird situation of that of that seat that uh, McSally uh, was um, appointed to. And she has conceded to him and she did give her retirement speech. So that's certainly, um, you know, that's certainly something that's not going to lend itself to a to a recount or anything like that. I think uh, I think the spread there was something like 79,000 votes, if I'm not mistaken. But you asked the most important question, which is whatever ultimate result here ha- takes place, um, what are we prepared for? Why weren't we prepared for this? Let me give you a date. September 2nd. Two months and one day before the election, William Barr, U.S. Attorney General, says to Wolf Blitzer on CNN, we've never had an election like this. We're playing with fire. Who did what about that? What was done prophylactically about that? I hope the White House right now is putting together a white paper on all the problems that every state committee and every county committee and every future election can look to and say, we have one big reform to make. Nothing like this ever again. And the things are different between the states. The problems are. But it wouldn't be hard for three, four smart people in the White House to put together that white paper and publish it. I'd like to see it.